Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy Show. My name is Peggy Doviak. I am a certified financial planner practitioner, and I love to help people with their money. So in today's 30-minute show, we're going to look at financial questions and issues you might have what's in the news, and help you understand words that might otherwise be confusing. You hear them, but nobody really knows what they mean. So to get started in the Bulls and Bears Market Report and Economic Update, I'd like to take a deep dive into economic indicators. And I know that sounds about as exciting as watching paint dry, but there's some things you need to know when you hear information on the news so you can judge what it represents. Because we hear something like, oh, unemployment is down, and that means everything is going to be great. Or the stock market is up, and that means everything is going to be great. But actually, different economic indicators can either lead or lag the market. So a leading indicator is a sense of where things are going, but a lagging indicator is more a sense of where things have been. And lagging indicators lag because they're typically the very last pieces of an economy to adjust, where leading indicators give you a sense of where the market thinks things are going, where the economy thinks things are going. So when you can break those in half and understand them, it makes it a lot easier to understand the news. So I'm not going to go over every leading economic indicator because that would be just so boring I can't do it for, to you. But I would like to talk about some of the ones that really matter because you've heard of them. And the number one leading economic indicator is the stock market. So when you say that the market is doing well, that is a sense that business believes that everything is going to be better going forward. The stock market is very predictive. Now, the minute it factors something in, it's off to the next big thing. So sometimes you'll actually get a stock market run up prior to news, and then when the news actually happens, the market pulls back. So maybe you were thinking about buying a stock, and that stock put out great earnings, and you weren't really paying attention to it, and you went ahead and you bought it because, wow, look, that's great news. I know the company, the earnings are great, and then you watch it go down for the next two or three days, and it can be really frustrating. And that's because everyone was expecting those earnings to be great. And so they'd already factored the cost of the stock in before the news actually broke. That's why sometimes if you're a real nerd like I am and listen to the business channel, you'll hear of an earnings surprise. Something will happen that the market really didn't see coming, either good or bad, and then that's when you'll get that immediate market reaction after the news. The market can't have been expecting it to happen. So another leading indicator is retail sales. Now, retail sales, we hear about a lot around Christmas. Well, they'll talk about how did the businesses do? Did they have a good Black Friday? Retail is a sense of consumer perception. 
If consumers perceive that they are doing well, they're much more likely to go out and buy retail products. If consumers perceive that they're not going to be doing as well in the future, they're much less likely to go out and buy those products. And then the final thing I want to talk about on leading indicators is the housing market. And that's both housing market as a category as well as building permits. So housing is a leading indicator because most of us don't pay cash for our houses. We get a mortgage. Even businesses don't pay cash for the buildings that they buy. So they have to anticipate earning potential to pay that mortgage, to pay that note, to pay that loan. So they have to, again, be optimistic really for the next 15, 20, 30 years and feel like they're not getting in over their head and they're going to be able to pay for what they bought. Now, again, sometimes the housing market is a bubble. That's a whole other story. But typically, housing is a really reliable leading economic indicator. So we have some lagging indicators. Remember, lagging indicators are really the last things to turn, and they aren't nearly as predictive as leading indicators. They're more a sense of where we've been. GDP, gross domestic product, is a lagging indicator, and we're not going to go into a lot of detail today about what makes up GDP, but basically it's what we produce as a nation. But it's a function of everything that's happened because it's not what we're anticipating that we're producing. It's actually a measure of what we've already done. So that makes it easy to see um, how it's lagging rather than leading. CPI, Consumer Price Index. Why am I saying that? Because that's the high-end word for inflation. Inflation is a lagging indicator. It's a function of things that have already happened going into what it costs now to produce things. Interest rates are a lagging indicator. It's sort of interesting, at least it is to me, because there's such a close correlation between CPI and interest rates. Remember that the Federal Reserve is only tasked with two things and that is to control inflation and make sure unemployment doesn't get too high. Well, controlling inflation is usually done through complicated processes, but the most obvious one is raising interest rates. So if CPI is going up and it's a lagging indicator, then interest rates would actually lag behind CPI. So it is really a lagging indicator. The last one I want to talk about is the unemployment rate. Why does unemployment lag? Because people hate to fire people. People don't like to have to lay off employees, and they'll do almost anything in a business cycle to avoid it. So unemployment numbers tend to lag. Now, the flip side of that is the employment numbers then also lag because they're the flip side of being un the unemployment numbers. And so as the employment numbers lag, when you're looking at, oh, how many jobs were created? It's a great number to follow. It is a sense of the health of the market. Lagging indicators are really useful, but they're not necessarily a sense of what's happening next. They're more a sense of what's already happened. 
So unemployment is more a sense of where we've been than where we've than where we're going. And I think that's important for you to understand because it's in the news so much. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back. In this episode of Legislative Update, I'm going to start out by telling you a brief legislative rural and then telling you why you care. So the Department of Labor won a fiduciary challenge in federal court that was put towards them by fixed indexed annuity companies. And the fixed indexed annuity companies were mad about the way that the DOL was requiring that they disclose to their consumers. And the DOL was saying, no, you have to reach a higher standard. And the firms wanted to reach a lower standard. And the court ruled with Department of Labor and said that, in fact, Department of Labor was right to make a higher standard on the advisor because of some characteristics of this product. So I want to move from here to explain to you what a fixed indexed annuity is. If you've ever seen the products where they guarantee a rate of return, where they guarantee you can't lose money, but there's a cap on how much market return you have, that is typically a fixed indexed annuity. On the fixed indexed annuity products, you're in the market like you would be in a variable annuity, but you're fixed in your index in that you have a maximum cap on how much return you can make. And it completely depends on the annuity, how much money that is. They're typically decent rates of return, but they are below the long-term average stock market return because the company is guaranteeing that on a down year, you won't lose any money. Now, they sound really almost too good to be true when you listen to them. And the problem with things that are almost too good to be true is they typically aren't true. They're good products, but they've got a lot of weird characteristics to them. So let me tell you the things that I don't like about fixed indexed annuities. And number one is that lack of full market participation. So if you're in a fixed indexed annuity and they have guaranteed that your upside is um, 7%. So that means that you can make 7% of stock market return every year. But last year, the market went up 20%. So the problem is you've lost all that growth potential. And then you say, yes, but Peggy, I can't lose money if the market goes down. And that's true. It absolutely is true. And there's points of time that markets drop at just exactly the wrong point in your financial life. Markets do or always have in the past. The broad market has always come back. This is why risk tolerance conversations with your financial advisor are really important to have to make sure that everyone knows when you need the money that's in the market. And if you need the money the next couple of years, my opinion is you probably shouldn't be in the market in the first place because it's just too volatile. So you lose the upside growth potential. If you're still not convinced, the second problem 
is the annual fees associated with it. I haven't gotten to commissions yet. I want to talk about the annual annuity fees. Remember that nothing is free. And so anytime you buy any sort of a financial product, even an indexed mutual fund, is going to have some kind of an annual fee with it. The problem with these indexed annuities, these um, fixed indexed annuities, is that the fees can be pretty dadgum high. So you need to look at the fees. How much are you paying every year? Also, there is a huge surrender period, typically. These products pay quite a bit of commission to the people who sell them as a general rule, because I don't want to say something as always. And that commission then ends up translating to your surrender period, where you can't take money out. Many times on these fixed index annuities, the surrender period can be 10 years. That is an unbelievably long time to lock up your money and not have the ability to get to more of it than the annual amount that they give you to pull down. And there is, there's a little money you can take out every year without triggering that surrender penalty. But you're really locked into a product that you can't get out of for a very long time. Additionally, any product created by any company is dependent on the health of that company to make sure the product's okay. And these fixed indexed annuities are a little scarier about that because if they were to go under, the amount of money that you get back could, because of how they're structured and it's very, very complicated, and I know you're just listening to the radio and you're not wanting a giant lesson, but you could really get much less money back than the money you think because all of the fees that you've had to pay, all of the financial, the way the investments actually worked, all, all of that goes into your real stack of money. That was the money you put in. The second stack of money is their guarantee. But the problem is if the company goes away, that guarantee goes away. And so you've just got to be sure if you, this is a product you're interested in that you do a lot of research on what's the maximum cap, how long is the surrender period. Ask that advisor who sells you the product or the insurance agent how much commission they got for it from the company that issued the product, because they will tell you, you didn't pay me, and it's true. It's the company that creates the annuity that pays the representative, and then they get the money back from you through the surrender period. So you have to ask this carefully. It's really important to understand it. Now, let's just circle back quickly to what happened with the Department of Labor rule. There is a way under this new fiduciary rule that some products are exempted from having as high of standards as other products. And the reason these products are exempted is they're incredibly plain vanilla. And it's really hard to do something that would not be in the client's best interest. They don't pay a lot of commission. They're fairly safe. And so there is an exemption carved out. The other way a product can be sold under the new fiduciary rule is through something called the BICE, the Best Interest Contract Exemption, 
where you actually have to sign a form that acknowledges that you know how much this advisor is getting for selling you the product. And it's a very strong legal barrier. And it makes it hard because you hand a client something like that, and they're going to say, why do I have to sign a best interest contract exemption? Because it just sort of automatically sounds like this might not be in my best interest. So they didn't want to have to do that. They wanted it to be exempted from the beginning. But because of the commission, because of the complication, because of the fees, um, DOL said, no, we're not actually going to exempt this. We're going to make you run under, um, exempt it through, through the code. We're going to make you run this through a best interest contract exemption that you hand, hand the client. The good news is that the courts agreed with the Department of Labor, and they said that plain old fixed annuities that are nothing like these and fixed indexed annuities are not at all alike, and the fact that DOL wanted a higher standard for the fixed indexed annuities was valid, according to the Tenth Court of Appeals. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome to the Plan Your Prosperity section. And today, I want to talk to you about disability insurance. And we want to look at what it is and what it does, how are the benefits paid, to help you decide if it's something that you should look at as part of your financial plan. Everyone talks about life insurance, and everyone is concerned about the crisis of what would happen if they died, and would their family be okay, would their loved ones be okay. And certainly, life insurance is critically important. Disability insurance does not actually get nearly as much attention, and the problem is today with the fact that most of us don't go to jobs where we're likely to die, and we have a lot of medical advances, and vehicles are a lot safer, and we can self-select not to do scary activities, we are much more likely statistically to become disabled during our working career than we are to die during our working career. And disability insurance provides money, typically about 60% of the pay that you're currently getting, that would be able to replace our income until we are full retirement age and eligible for the retirement benefits that we would have received had we not been disabled, as well as the Social Security. So it's important to think about whether or not having an insurance policy like that makes sense. What would happen if you couldn't work? You're not dead, and you may have medical bills and costs and care and all of those pieces that are part of someone who is ill for a long period of time, but they don't have your income anymore. And if the answer to that question is, I think we'd be in a real problem, then you might want to consider disability insurance. Now, probably the easiest, least expensive way to acquire it would be through your employer if they offered it. Disability comes short-term and long-term, the short term is usually a two-year max benefit. 
the long term doesn't kick in until you've been disabled for a while because you've got that short-term policy that's filling that piece, and then it would pay the benefit until you were 65. Employers usually offer the short-term coverage because most disabilities don't result in never being able to work again. They result in not being able to work for a while. The long-term disability policies are typically purchased independently, but they might be available through your employer. You'd want to talk to your HR department and see whether or not that benefit was something you had access to. If you do have access to the benefit through work, the person who pays the premiums becomes really important. Sometimes employers will pay for a disability policy for you. Sometimes it's on a cafeteria of choices. You can opt to take it. You can opt to pay for it yourself, or you can let the employer pay for it for you. If your employer pays your disability premium, if you should receive the disability benefits, they are taxable to you because you didn't pay the premium. So the employer pays the premium and you get the benefit, you pay the tax. On the other hand, if you pay the premium, whether you buy it through your employer's um, cafeteria plan or if you go out and you get an independent policy on your own, if you've paid the premium, then the benefits come to you income tax-free. Now remember, I told you that they're only about 60% of your income. So if you've got tax on top of that, even at a relatively modest rate, you've got a sharply reduced benefit that might be limiting your income at exactly the time that you needed it the most. So it's very important to look at what's available, look at the cost of what's available, and at least have a family discussion about whether or not you think this is something that you should purchase. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. And now it's time for the Ask Peggy segment. Remember, this is my favorite part of the show where you have the opportunity to ask me questions. You can go to the Facebook page, Ask Peggy, and type in a question that I can answer on the show. Or sometimes people ask me questions and I get the questions from there. But if you'd like to participate in the show, you need to go to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and send me a question. I had a question for last week's show that I didn't have time to get to, and I think it's a really important question, so I'd like to go ahead and address it now. And the question is, Peggy, how much should I save for retirement? Well, obviously, that's a very broad question, and I can't answer it as a number, but I can give you several things you need to consider and you need to put into your equation as you're trying to figure out how much money you need to save for retirement. And the first suggestion that I would give to you is avoid rules of thumb. There is the, um, you'll need 80% of the money during retirement that you spend right now. So that basically that's easy. You take the money you spend now and you calculate 80% of it and that's how much you need in retirement. That advice just scares me to death. And it scares me to death 
because that might work on average for people. It might be that the national average is 80%, but we don't have any idea whether or not what you want to do meets that national average. So I would rather have you do it a little bit more complicated, but a lot more thoughtful. So the first thing I want you to do is not really look at your paycheck, but look at your cash flow. I love cash flow. Everything comes down to money in and money out. How much do you spend today? I want you to then look at what you're spending and not just the dollar amount, but what it's on. So if you've got a mortgage today and you know you're not going to have a mortgage when you're in retirement, then that might be a little bit less cash flow that you need. But you may want to travel more. And so your mortgage today may become a travel budget in the future. The other thing to consider is what's going to happen to your health care cost. If you're going to retire before you're eligible for Medicare, then you're going to have to find a way to meet your health insurance need for that period of time between when you quit your job and when you're 65. Now, some employers allow you to keep the insurance that you had. Some employers still, there's jobs that don't have great insurance coverage, so you'd have to make your own way. We still have the pre-existing conditions don't count clause in our health insurance. So that's helping a little bit, but it's a long time before you're ready to retire. And right now in the current state of health insurance, I think you need to plan for more costs rather than less. And additionally, you have health costs at the end of life. So you will probably need home health care or nursing home care, or assisted living care, it is not likely that you will die independently in your own home, and you've got to find a way to pay for some of that. Remember also that you don't want to use crazy high rates of return. So what are crazy high rates of return? That doesn't sound like a financial definition. Crazy high rates of return are assuming that your portfolio is going to get the long-term stock market portfolio average of 11% because you are going to have things in your portfolio that aren't just stocks. And if you're 100% stock, you have a very high risk level in that portfolio. And I know there's some financial celebrities that are suggesting that you want to think three times before you don't create a portfolio that has some ballast to it if something were to go wrong in the markets. So a realistic rate of return could be closer. I've seen people go as low as five or six. You could use eight, but you certainly don't want to use 11, and you've got to base it off your risk tolerance. Also remember that inflation is going to impact what things cost, and that will be a negative force against your savings, and you'll have to have more money because of it. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. The second question today is, Peggy, how long does it take my money to double? Well, of course, that's a function of how it's invested. It's a function of stock market returns. But I can give you a basic rule of thumb, and it's called the rule of 72. The rule of 72 says if you take the 
average rate of return that you're getting on your portfolio as a whole number, so 8% would be 8. When you multiply that times the number of years it's been invested, when that product equals 72, the portfolio has doubled in value. It's just a math function of annualized compounding returns. So if you're making 8% a year, it'll take 9 years. If you're making 6% a year, it will take 12 years. Now, remember that you also have inflation on top of this so that things will cost twice what they do today every 24 years because 3%, the long-term rate, times 24 is 72. So you need to remember that that's working against you just like your growth rate is working for you. Well, I can't believe again how fast the show goes, but I got to the questions this week. I'll see you next week. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.